This month on Security Management Highlights. Throughout this really long and complicated migrant journey, there are many opportunities for children to unknowingly come face to face with the very thing they are trying to escape. Underage migrants in Europe are in danger of being exploited by extremist groups. National Security Editor Lily Chapa tells us more. So initially there was a lot of interest in purchasing cyber insurance policies, but after the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, interest kind of waned. The pros and cons of cybersecurity insurance. Is there a drawback to getting coverage? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains. Plus, I do think that every executive traveling abroad does require a good security team behind the scenes. Executives traveling solo should employ these best practices to stay safe. Stratfor.com's Fred Burton joins us. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stoll, and that's all coming up on the May edition of Security Management Highlights. Minor migrants are coming to Europe in droves to escape the plight of terrorism and war in their own countries. But many of these unaccompanied youths end up right back in the hands of extremists. National Security Editor Lily Chapa joins us now to talk about the efforts advocates are making to protect these at-risk youth. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. So there's an influx of refugees in Europe, obviously. But when it comes to children, what's the exact situation going on? How many children refugees are there? And what are some of the dangers facing them? I was actually really surprised when I started working on this story to discover just how large-scale the situation is. We know that in 2015, there were about a million refugees that made their way to Europe, and more than a third of those are minors. And according to the UN, 10,000 of those kids went missing after arriving in Europe. And if that's not bad enough, a lot of times these young people wind up working underpaid jobs or even being taken in by extremist organizations, which is detailed in a report by the counter-extremist organization Quilliam. And there's a lot going on here about how these kids get there and what it takes. So I'll back up a little bit and talk about the typical journey of a minor migrant from their home country to Europe. Most refugees will take a boat or pay smugglers to get them to a safe third country where they will be registered and often kept in refugee camps for extended periods of time before they are put into a system to enter a country of destination, such as the United Kingdom or somewhere else in Europe. During this journey, they often encounter smugglers and may end up in unofficial urban camps where they become untrackable. If an individual is able to reach the destination country, they are often put into detention centers and eventually moved into an immigration removal center for long periods of time while their paperwork is processed. Even after getting settled at one of these centers, some refugees are still turned away because they are unable to prove that their lives were at stake in their home country, and the burden of proof of that lies on the refugees themselves. And for someone who may not speak the language and has been through this whole ordeal to get there, especially children, this is really difficult. And if they are unable to prove persecution and threats to life, they will be sent back and repatriated in their home country. So not only do terrorist organizations coerce and manipulate children and minors into joining their ranks, some of them even go willingly. Why is this the case? Well, throughout this really long and complicated migrant journey, there are many opportunities for children to unknowingly come face to face with the very thing they are trying to escape. Quilliam found that extremist organizations are obsessed with recruiting young migrants, so they'll infiltrate the migrant camps and detention centers and befriend these kids who are scared and have nobody with them. 
Sometimes these kids will end up joining these groups out of lack of other opportunities, especially if they need basic things like food, water, or money. These extremist organizations will provide that and create a sense of loyalty. So the Quilliam Report gives some ways that human rights activists and others can divert these recruitment efforts by extremists. What are some of the ways to counteract those? A big push right here is to educate people on the front lines who are encountering these children and teach them how to recognize when extremist groups try to start grooming these young people for recruitment. This type of training would focus on treating children as children first, not as asylum seekers, and implement social procedures on assisting these kids through the resettlement process. It's also imperative to create a strong support system and help them integrate with society, because if that doesn't happen, it's all the easier for an extremist to step in and sow doubt and give them a more sinister purpose. You write a little bit about how the populist movement in Europe has had a negative impact on efforts to protect these minors. What is the current climate and why is it negatively impacting efforts? The experts I spoke to say that this anti-refugee sentiment makes leaders less willing to provide resources to refugee settlement organizations, which makes it harder to build these safety nets that the kids need. If these children feel like they're unwanted in Europe, they may be more likely to join a sympathetic extremist organization that steps in. And several countries have reduced the number of migrants they're taking in, which means that these kids will be sent right back to these areas of extreme conflict where they can easily be poached by radicals. Yes, certainly a dangerous situation for minor immigrants. Thank you for stopping by and explaining all this to us, Lily. Of course. With cybersecurity on the mind of every organization, companies may want to consider purchasing cybersecurity insurance. The industry, however, is still trying to gain traction as insurers struggle to price risk. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about cyber insurance. When did this start making its mark and how can it help protect businesses? Cyber insurance, super exciting topic. Cyber insurance is, in the world of insurance, relatively new. It got its start in the 1990s uh, when the internet first became publicly available and businesses began selling goods online. This opened up a new area of liability for businesses because they were looking to the insurance market to cover risks associated with e-commerce, but they really found that none of the existing insurance models were relevant. And I talked to an expert, Graham Newman, Chief Innovation Officer at CFC Underwriting in London, about this, and he sort of gave me a quick snapshot of how cybersecurity insurance became a thing. And he was talking about the main concern that businesses were worried about was not that their physical building would burn down or that they wouldn't be able to conduct trade on their physical premises, but that their systems would go down and they wouldn't be able to trade. Their biggest asset, he said, was their data, the data that they held on people. And if they lost that data, there'd be no loss to physical assets. They wanted a product that they could use to insure the data. And that's where cyber insurance was really born. So cyber liability policies, they were created in the 90s. They cover a range of areas, including identity theft, business interruptions from hackers shutting down a network, damage to a business's reputation, and costs associated with damage to data records caused by a hacker. Policies can also cover the theft of digital assets, malicious attacks via computer code, human errors that disclose sensitive information, credit monitoring services, and lawsuits. So initially, there was a lot of interest in purchasing cyber insurance policies, but after the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, interest kind of waned um, until 2012 when they started to get traction again. Um, 
because businesses realized that they had websites and stored a lot of data, both customer and corporate data, and that data is becoming more important to these companies than their physical assets. And at the same time, we also saw a major shift in crime with physical crime morphing into cyber crime, you know, the rise of phishing scams, business email compromise, ransomware, and more. And this really helped push cyber insurance as more of a mainstream line of insurance. So how many companies actually go out and buy this type of insurance? I mean, you wouldn't want to drive a car that's not insured, but this seems like a little more of a luxury in some ways. And what are some of the barriers that are stalling the growth of the cyber insurance sector in general? Yeah, good questions, Holly. So the current cyber insurance market, when I was doing my research for this piece earlier this year, was valued at $3 billion. And 90% of all cyber insurance is purchased in the United States. Um, And this is for a variety of reasons, Graham Newman said, including the aggressive class action lawsuit culture that we have in the United States. Some kinds of businesses that have cyber insurance are typically hospitals because they have a lot of sensitive patient data that they need to keep secured. Retailers are also purchasing cyber insurance. Um, especially following the rise of mega breaches at Target, Home Depot, Neiman Marcus, and others in 2013 and 2014, where hackers targeted them to acquire a vast amount of customer payment card information, which led to a lot of issues, investigations, lawsuits, some of which we are still seeing play out today. So those are the kind of companies that are buying cyber insurance. But despite those companies that are interested in it, only 25% of U.S. businesses and 2% of U.K. businesses have purchased cyber insurance policies. And this could be because of a wide range of things. And I actually looked at a Price Waterhouse Coopers report and interviewed a few experts to talk to them about why companies have been so slow to purchase cybersecurity insurance. So yeah, one of the barriers is that the cost of cyber insurance um, can be really, really high. Uh, I interviewed PwC's former U.S. Cybercrime and Breach Response Senior Managing Director, Don Olsh, and he said that you know one of his clients experienced this just a couple of years ago, a major global manufacturing firm. They were attempting to buy cyber insurance, and they found that the carrier would only provide $1 of coverage for each $1 in premiums that they paid. And the client ultimately, Olsh said, went forward and purchased the policy because it felt that it needed to to meet certain regulation guidelines. But, you know, this is not necessarily the case for all businesses. And PwC also found in its report that many carriers who are issuing cyber insurance policies, they're putting a ceiling on the potential losses through restrictive limits, exclusions, and conditions. For instance, common conditions for you know, your policy can include state-of-the-art data encryption or 100% updated security patch clauses, which are difficult for most businesses to maintain. And then another area that might be stalling actual growth is confusion just about how to cover certain risks associated with cybersecurity. And one topic that kept coming up over and over again in my interviews was how to cover an incident such as a real-world physical incident that's caused by a cyber attack. What area of insurance should cover that? You know, should it be part of your commercial general liability insurance or should it be under cyber insurance? So these are some questions that the market is struggling to answer that might be stalling growth. Now, you do write one development that could spur the adoption of cyber insurance policies comes from the U.S. Treasury Department's TRIP program, T-R-I-P. What does that stand for? And tell us more about that program. Yeah, so TRIP is the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program, um, and it was initially created in the aftermath of 9-11 as a federal stopgap to allow private companies to purchase terrorism insurance. And under the program, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and the Attorney General can certify an event as an act of terrorism. If damages from the act exceed $200 million, TRIP is triggered to cover the remaining losses. So before 2016, there was a lot of confusion as to whether TRIP would be 
triggered for a cyber terrorism incident. And so to clarify, the U.S. Department of Treasury issued new guidance in December 2016, confirming that standalone cyber insurance policies reported as cyber liability are included in the property and casualty insurance under TRIP. Now, you write that there are some potential problems with TRIP, and one of your sources said things could be done to improve the program. Who was that, and what did he say? Yeah, I spoke with Robert Kanaki. He's with the Council on Foreign Relations um, and was a former White House advisor on cybersecurity. And he wrote a big white paper on cyber insurance and why there should be a federally sponsored program for cybersecurity insurance. And one area that he said that TRIP falls short on is that it doesn't place requirements on insurance policies and on companies themselves to improve their own security. Um, And he said that this was discussed at the time that TRIP was created, but ultimately decided against. And he says that he really thinks that this is needed for cybersecurity. When I did an interview with him, he explained that, you know, cyber, with the presence of the threat and with the fundamental responsibility being on companies to protect themselves, that a model that is like TRIP but creates a situation in which the insurance is being used to promote cyber hygiene and better practices and information sharing makes a lot of sense. So for instance, to sort of address this issue, Rob recommended that regulators, they set minimum requirements for cyber insurance for companies that want to take advantage of TRIPS protections, such as the approach that U.S. financial regulators have taken to cybersecurity to address potential systemic risk throughout the entire system should a major financial institution be hit with a cyber attack. Excellent. Well, thank you for telling us more about cyber insurance. And with all the attacks, you know, there's no shortage of reasons that companies need to protect themselves. So thank you so much for coming and filling us in, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, executives are increasingly wishing to travel without protection personnel at their side. Fred Burton, chief security officer at geopolitical intelligence platform Stratfor.com, explains what best practices can be employed to help business executives traveling solo. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. What is the challenge for executives traveling alone versus with an executive protection team? Well, I think in our post-9-11 world in general for chief security officers or for executive protection teams, the world has changed a bit. And uh, as I commented in the article, not every executive needs visible executive protection or security officers on travel. However, I do think that every executive traveling abroad does require a good security team behind the scenes to take a look at risk and facilitation to make sure there's no problems when that executive travels. You write that executives traveling without security detail can use situational awareness and counter surveillance to help protect themselves. How so? Well, we're very big on situational awareness and counter-surveillance. It was actually a program that we implemented when I was a special agent with the State Department back in the 80s when we were looking at uh, attacks on diplomatic facilities and diplomats, and all the gates, guns, and guards were not stopping these from occurring. We started modeling as to why these attacks were being successful, and it boils down to that awareness fact. I think it's critical for executives traveling alone that they understand that there's certain parts of their trip that uh, are more critical than others. So, for example, one of the simplest things that executives can do is to pay attention to their departure points with an eye towards looking for vehicles or people that could potentially be watching. And in essence, what you're trying to do is key on people or vehicles 
over any kind of time and distance. And that certainly from a situational awareness standpoint is critical. And also there's that awareness factor to help prevent just basic crime. So for example, if you're exiting a high-end hotel in Mexico City, and if you're more observant in that time period from the time you leave the hotel until you get into your car or with your driver, you have to be cognizant to the criminal elements as well. So what I found over looking at countless attacks on diplomats and executives for any number of years now, uh, and I've been in this business since the uh, early 80s, is that the failure to pay attention leads to a lot of problems. Fire safety is a big topic you address in the story. What should executives be aware of to combat this threat, which could be common in developing countries with poor infrastructure or with terrorists who like to sometimes use fire as a weapon? Well, I think people tend to discount fire. You know, I wrote my last book on uh, the terrorist attack in Benghazi. And if you look at the lessons learned from that, fire as a weapon has been historically a problem for the State Department specifically, not only in Benghazi, but also in 1979 in Islamabad at the U.S. Embassy there. So when you look at fire... It's one of the things that is troubling because there are certain things that you could do to try to mitigate that if you are that executive traveling alone. And what I mean by that is make sure that um, you stay above the second floor to avoid your common criminal break-ins or the possibility of a kidnapping or terrorists coming into your suite. But also make sure that you don't book a room above the sixth floor because that will usually put you within the range of most ladder trucks. And especially when you're traveling abroad where you have very lax fire codes, uh, I know it's not unusual, for example, to find hotel properties where they actually chain the emergency exits so criminals can't get into that facility. So one of the things that uh, the security team could do behind the scenes is to do some pre-planning for that executive traveling and make sure that you're picking a reputable hotel chain. And if you are that executive that's traveling, walk the stairwells yourself. I always do. I was recently in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a ASIS event, and I actually walk the stairwells myself, which is a matter of practice. And I also travel with a smoke hood. And I know that smoke hoods would have made a big difference in Benghazi. That's one of the things that you can do to proactively facilitate that executive's travel too is make sure that they have a smoke hood that they travel with to buy you that time in case you run into problems at the hotel or if you're taking public transportation, for example, a subway. On public transportation, you obviously have to elevate your situational awareness. And I always carry a smoke hood in my uh, carry-on bag in case of a terrorist attack or a fire or some sort of accident on the subway. In essence, that smoke hood could be donned on pretty quickly. I also carry a flashlight with me. In fact, two, just to make sure that I always have one that's a high-end kind of light to be able to get myself out of harm's way. And I know that many executive protection teams that travel with their CEOs also travel with smoke hoods and flashlights. But it's a good practice to also have that kind of flyaway kit for those executives that might not be getting the attention that, for example, the CEO gets on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, as you drill down into your C-suite staff. 
The article also mentions tips for researching threats ahead of time on the area where the executive is going. How can they go about doing this in an effective manner? I think that's critical to any trip. And there's so much corporate travel today, as we know, with your big companies, but even your smaller companies that have their executives that are traveling around the world, that a lot of that work can be done back at the home office by uh, the security officers their team in helping with the preparation for that, your basic advance work to kind of analyze the executive schedule, take a look at the transportation service, who's going to be provided, keep a close eye on those destinations, and, and think about utilizing all the free government kind of websites that are out there from the UK FCO's office to the State Department OSAC kind of alert to make sure that you're up to speed and on the terror threat as well as the criminality factor. Obviously, Obviously, here at our company at Stratfor, we have a tremendous amount of material that's on our website, and uh, a good good amount of that is actually free if folks want to just uh, data search some of the reports that we have on uh, different places around the world. And while it may seem obvious, you point out that, if possible, the executives and their security teams back home need to establish potential liaisons in the countries they're traveling to. Well, it's been my experience that in this business that even if you're dealing with competitors and you have an executive traveling to another company, that there's a commonality factor in the business that we're all in of of taking care of each other and, and helping from the corporate security umbrella space to look out for each other. And I think that even comes into play, uh, I know from my days of being an agent, when we would work joint protective details with the Israelis and the Palestinians, that there's that commonality factor that if we keep each other alive, we're going to keep everybody well protected. And what I tend to have seen over the years is at times a lack of wanting to reach out and notify that company that an executive is traveling, which I think is a failure at times. I I think it's good due diligence to reach out. And, you know, nine times out of 10, you will get that corporate host that will say, sure, we could help you. In fact, I'll meet your executive at the curb and I'll make sure that he or she gets to the meeting and here's my phone number. And, you know, heck, I'll give you a call when your executive arrives to make sure that everything's okay. So I think that at times in our business, we don't take advantage of that enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Fred. Well, thank you so much for having me. That does it for this month. Be sure to stay tuned for a bonus episode in the next few days on securing houses of worship with ASIS member Jim McGuffey. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.